It is Russian roulette on the coast road south, the only way from Beirut to southern Lebanon. Lebanon has been the Irish Defence Force's longest overseas mission and our most deadly. 47 Irish soldiers have lost their lives there. Also under shellfire, the Irish UN battalion at the frontline town of Tebnin. In recent days, Dublin can hardly have seemed further away. When soldiers go on an overseas mission, they know that their lives are at risk. Danger is expected. But what happened at an Irish military checkpoint in Lebanon in 1982 was not expected. It was never supposed to happen. The the nation was shocked by it. Uh, You know, you don't send peacekeepers out thinking they're going to be shot down. The memory of what happened back then still haunts the families of the victims. The people that were left behind, my daughter never known her father. Such a horrendous thing should never be forgotten. In a battle, it's a loss. It's accepted losses. Outside that, it's murder. And that's what it was. Cold-blooded, heartless murder, you know. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. Together with Irish Times crime correspondent Conor Gallagher, over the next three episodes, we'll tell the story of what happened at Tibnine Bridge in October 1982. Connor, can we jump back 40 years to 1982? What was going on in Ireland that year politically, socially? What kind of country was this place? Well, Ireland was still a a very poor country. We still had a massive amount of emigration in 1982. It was also a very busy year on the news front. (laughs) It certainly was. That was 1982. And I remember that uh, summer very well. It was a sweltering summer. Tom McCochran was RTE security correspondent. There's trouble in the north. Belfast security forces have been petrol bombed and buses set on fire. There'd been three murders at home. Two of them turned out to have been by Malcolm MacArthur. We tracked him down and he was uh, eventually convicted of one of the murders and served life. He, he was released only recently. It was a really traumatic year for death and destruction. And in 1982, Connor, Irish people were also hearing a lot about Lebanon and the conflict in Lebanon because the UN had sent Irish Defence Forces out there. What was happening in Lebanon and what was Irish people's understanding of that conflict? So this was a mission called UNIFIL, the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon. And it was established in 1978 after Israel went to war with Lebanon. The refugees of the Middle East are on the move again, fleeing from the bombs and shells of an advancing army. The people of Lebanon, innocent civilians whose country is now a war front. What happened was that uh, Israel had carried out yet another invasion of Lebanon to drive back members of the PLO and militia who had been probably firing rockets into into Israel as they usually did. The UN were left to man a buffer zone between them and the Palestinians who had been pushed north of the Litani River. The United Nations force had to interpose itself between the Litani River and between the, the, the militia. Palestinians have cooperated with UNIFIL, as the force is called, and have made little attempt to infiltrate back towards the Israeli border. It was a very, very challenging mission as well, especially at this time. It was a time of incredibly high tensions between uh, Israel and Lebanon. They never knew when uh, somebody was going to creep on, on them at night through the hills and valleys, very arid area, not much cover. And the shootings might happen at night. It was very dangerous. And we lost a few soldiers there. 
by 1982, Israel actually launched a fresh invasion of Lebanon. By June, tensions were at their height, and the Israeli military were finally given the go-ahead. The Irish brief was to observe and report, but not get involved. After all, they're peacekeepers, not peace enforcers. So the UN troops did nothing as the Israelis invaded the Lebanon for the second time in less than five years. You had Irish troops watching as Israeli tanks and firepower came through their checkpoints and passed their camps to invade Lebanon. What was the Irish representation like in Lebanon at that time? Who were these young men who were out there? The Irish contingent out there was a battalion-sized contingent numbering several hundred troops. Um, They were located in various different bases uh, in this kind of buffer zone between Israel and Lebanon, you know, and they would have manned lots of different bases, watchtowers and checkpoints along various roads and uh, wadis. And one of those checkpoints was Tibnin Bridge. Three of the young men who were out in Lebanon in 1982 became quite well known in Ireland in the months and years that followed. What can you tell us about Peter Burke, Gary Morrow and Thomas Murphy? So Peter Burke was a young man from Inchicore in Dublin. He just celebrated his 20th birthday and had followed his uncle into the army where he was assigned to the 5th Battalion. He was the one son that you would see walking up the road carrying flowers on Mother's Day. And he bought, him and his girlfriend bought us their first pressure cooker, which I still have. Peter Burke's parents, Noel and Mary, still live in Inchcore today. He had one suit, it was a pinstripe suit. And when he put it on him, he was, he was tall and very thin. But when he put this suit with the waistcoat, he just looked ma- magnificent. Brilliant humour. Loved sports, football. He was average at school. He just came in one night and asked Dad to take him down to the barracks that he was going to join the army. Now, you could have knocked me down with a feather because I didn't think he was army material. Well, you see, I had an older brother that went, but, like, we weren't in contact until I got a letter from Lebanon saying, I'm out in Lebanon. Where in the hell the name is Lebanon? This is my eldest brother. Imagine we didn't know where it was. We didn't know where it was. When we were at the airport saying goodbye, then the soldiers was all going through, and Peter was the last going through, and he just whispered to me, "Ma'am, will you look after Martina, his girlfriend? She was lovely. She, you know, uh, she spent more time down here, nearly than at home." But um, he said, "Ma'am, will you?" Or the Wilson, and when he got to turn around. He was the last soldier. And I said to him, we're never going to see Peter again. He formed part of the 51st Battalion, which went out to Lebanon earlier in the year. And in October 1982, he was due to return home within a week as he was being replaced by the 52nd Battalion. Thomas Murphy, uh, again, he just turned 20 years old. He was part of the 2nd Battalion. And Corporal Gregory Morrow, also known as Gary, was another young man. He was from Northern Ireland and was also 20 years old. He had come south to join the Irish Defence Forces, where he was assigned to the 2nd Battalion. When Corporal Morrow went out to Lebanon, he had just married his uh, fiancée, Colette. Well, the reason why we did meet is my brother wanted me to go on a blind date with a fellow called Jimmy Morrow. And 
I said this was the last date I was going to go on on a blind day. I was sick of him asking me to go out with his friends. The weekend came and Jimmy reacted badly to injections, so he couldn't make it. But his cousin was sent instead, and it was Gary. So that's how myself and Gary met on a blind date. He was a very sporty. He was an all-army boxer. He was very good in goalie. Um, He was one of the best, they said. He was just an all-round sportsman. He could play anything, snooker, darts. He was just good at everything like that. You know, in a short life, like as young as he was, he was very good. And two and a half years later, I think it was, maybe three, we were married. Um, we were married for about six months. So, Connor, it's October 1982. These three young men are out in Lebanon. One of them is just about to leave to go home. The other two have just arrived. Let's jump to the evening of October 27th, 1982. These three young men were out in Lebanon, out at Tibnine Bridge. What were they doing there? These men were part of a contingent sent over to take over the, uh, basically the night watch uh, at Tibnine Bridge. A Tibnine Bridge uh, was a checkpoint, fairly basic structure, uh, a hut where the men could take shelter with a machine gun emplacement up top. And their job was to check the traffic going back and forth and check people's IDs. Despite the tension and the violence in the region at the time, it would have been a relatively dull job. The Irish responsibility was to observe and report rather than get directly involved. The first indication the Irish contingent got that there was anything wrong was a garbled radio message which was received by the troops stationed at the main camp, which was located about two kilometres away from the bridge. One of the people who heard that message was Acting Corporal Paul Clark. It's something that will be with me for the rest of my days, you know. I was out having a shower and I was in the office and I came out of the office. Johnny O'Connor was on the, the radio that night and... As I was walking by the door, I heard, we're hit up, we're hit up. So Paul and his comrades jumped into an APC, an armoured personnel carrier, and sped down to the bridge, thinking they were going into the midst of an attack by a Lebanese militia. We got down uh, fairly quick. And as I got down to the bridge, there's a road to the right comes down the hill to uh, the bridge. I come down from Sultanaya and there's another road heading up to Aljorn. And in the middle of the, the three roads is the checkpoint. And as I got closer, I stopped with my lights on and I could see two, two uh, Arabs, two local Lebanese men with a BMW just on the bridge and the two of them were out of the car with their hands up. And I could see in my headlights uh, two bodies on the the ground. Paul first found the bodies of Private Murphy and Private Burke. They were very clearly dead. And also there was two Lebanese civilians who had gotten out of their car and were kneeling on the ground. And pointing a machine gun at them was a fourth Irish man, a man who wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place, a man who had actually swapped shifts at the last minute. His name was Private Michael McAlevey. McAlevey was standing there with the rifle pointing out through the slit hole at the two Lebanese men. Took the rifle off him and he kept saying that we were hit up. I was up on 
I was up on up at the gun, I, I fired I returned fire, you know. I moved the APC in front of the two bodies to cover off because in our mind there was someone out there firing at us. Flares start going up from the artillery of our unit, the Irish Bat, and they were lighting up the area. Once a flare goes up in the air, you have to get down and stay still. If you move, you could be deadly, you know. So everyone was down, and when Dennis said, Paul, there's a body over here, and I crawled over, and I felt the legs, and I went up the arm, and I felt the stripes of Gary Morrow. I'll never forget uh, the doc, uh, Dr. Philip Roy was his name. He was a civilian in a uniform. Lovely, lovely man. Very soft person. Shouldn't have been there at all. And when he got out, we got some lights on the bodies and he started crying. He was so upset. Oh my God, these poor kids. And uh, there was nothing he could do. He said, I can't do anything for these men at all. And he was, you know, he just broke down. He was so upset. At this stage, no one knew who the shooters were. It could have been any number of armed groups operating in the area. It could have been the Israelis, the Lebanese, the PLO, or Israeli-backed Christian militias. Or it could have just been an interaction at the checkpoint that went wrong. A fax sent back to Army headquarters that night gives a good summation of what was known at the time about the attack. At about 20.30 local time Wednesday, a radio message was received by Alpha Company at Asutania that the post at Tibnin Bridge was under fire. Reinforcements were sent to the scene immediately. This reinforcement party found Private Michael McAlevey, aged 21, at the checkpoint with two civilians at gunpoint with their hands in the air. A civilian car belonging to these civilians was at the checkpoint. Bodies of three soldiers were found lying against the blockhouse at the checkpoint. Soldiers had been shot several times at close range. The area was cordoned off and patrols were sent out into the rugged terrain in the vicinity, assisted by illumination flares. Other UNIFIL battalions were alerted. Search continued until morning without any results. Detailed investigation is now in progress. Para-Lebanese internal security forces questioned the two civilians who appear to have arrived after the incident and who do not appear to have been involved. The news came on and the news came as a flash. Now, I, I'm not too sure whether it was Rodney Rice or no, that. It was, there was the other fellow. Uh, Davis. No, Davis. the newscaster. Yeah, I know. Derek Davis. Derek Davis. Yeah, I always mix the two of them up. And he interrupted the programme to say news has come in that three Irish UN soldiers have been killed. Which, and my heart stopped. Now, I was up at the girlfriend's house and I said to them, I have to go home. And I knew that one of them was Peter. And I came home and I, I said... It's Peter, I know it's Peter, and Ronnie and Rick, the boys, said, stop it, you're frightening us. So I rang the Defence Forces, and they said, we've no news yet, but please remember, if we had, we wouldn't be able to tell you on the phone. So we decided then we'd go to bed. No news was good news, as far as we were concerned. But I couldn't, I was in bits, and I was only in the bed, and next minute we heard all, you know, trucks doors closing one after the other one after the other and 
just walked down the stair and I opened the door and I said, please tell me that he's injured because it said one of them was injured. And they said, well, no, we're sorry, Mrs. Bork. And it was the chaplain and a few of the officers and it was packed with all trucks. And I, I think I kind of went into a, a disbelief. Like, I couldn't even cry. Like, you know, I, I couldn't even... Um. It was just the most... Unexplainable horror. I was working late on the 27th of October and I went down for a drink with my friend and we stayed for two and we were heading down to the 24-hour shop in Rat Mines and an army car pulled up alongside us and they, got, they thought she was me and they were asking her was she Colette Morrow and she was saying no but she knew it's like if I went blank, she knew why they were there. And I thought it was a joke. I really thought it was somebody setting me up. And they said, we have to talk to you. And I said, this, this is a joke. I was looking around. But my friend, I seen my friend Jennifer becoming very upset. I knew then this was something serious. But I didn't know at that stage whether he was dead. I, I had in my head he was badly injured. They told me that they needed to speak to me. I had to go into the car and they said, oh, I said to the priest that was in the car, I said, don't you lie to me. You tell me the truth. You're a priest. Is Gary dead or alive? And he said, God will be with you. God will be with you all the way. And I said, I'm not asking God, I'm asking you. You know, it was really getting to me then because I really needed to know. Um, And that's all the priest would say. And then I knew then. I said, yeah, he's dead. Here's former RTE security correspondent Tom McCochran. So the word that came back was that a car had come up to this checkpoint. The occupants had jumped out, opened fire, uh, killed three of them, and then driven off. And that the survivor, uh, who turned out to be Private Mike McGillivy, that he had been up at the toilet. When he came back down, he found his uh, three colleagues uh, dead around this little um, concrete building. And the bodies were lying around this blockhouse. And uh, McAlevey was in a, a state of shock. And uh, we got no more information than, than that. It, it, uh, information was, they kept a tight lid on the UN and the Irish Army back at home. In the days that followed, the Irish authorities found themselves in a situation where they three dead soldiers and one soldier in severe shock and no idea of who the attackers were. McAlevey, as the only Irish man who knew exactly what had happened, would give his first account to military police a short time later. I seen flashes coming from the road below me and I heard shouting and yelling. I then hit the ground for cover and stayed there till the firing stopped. But something didn't add up. No one had claimed the attack. No other shell casings were found at the scene. And there was no intelligence about an attack by the Lebanese militia or the Israeli forces. Tomorrow, in episode two, shocking revelations emerge from the investigation into the killings at Tibnean Bridge. This episode was researched and reported by me, Sir Hapollock, and by Connor Gallagher, and it was produced by Declan Conlon. <laughs>